so welcome, 1st of December, and it's a cracker. God gave me that title, I said, brilliant. Um, but before I start, I just want to read a word that came into us during the week. There's a lot of prophetic words fluttering onto the uh, mat at the moment. This may help you to understand what is happening personally or within your fellowship. It just may help you to make sense of it, that God is actually in control and we do not want to blame the devil for something that Father's doing. And this is called Dust Bowl. I believe it's from Chris Larkin's um, ministry, Sword of Fire. I saw great waves of dust rolling over the land. It looked like surf, but it was all dust, blowing across the ground. It was like a huge dust storm, but it was not caused by winds, storms or tornadoes. It was from the earth. The waves kept rolling. They were no higher than buildings or any man-made construction, and they rolled over everything that could be seen. It seemed like the dust was in the wake of angelic hordes being released over the land, stirring everything and everybody, unsettling them. I saw many people being lifted up and put down in different positions or places. Then I could see the outline of horses' hooves in the dust, galloping across the ground, but the horses' hooves did not cause the dust. I could see angelic hosts above the horses, but they were not riding them, they were accompanying them. As these waves rolled, I could see figures running around and I knew that the dust was coming from the figures, the people who were stirred up, shaken up, disorientated. There was a lot of running around, people rushing in confusion. There was a stirring up of all that was earthly and it was the preordained time for this to happen. Yet it was also a response to the prayers of the many saints who had cried out for healing in the land. The prayers were not being answered in the way they thought, and to some it seemed a terrible thing, even the work of the enemy, but it was the Lord's mercy being released. All that was built on man-made structures was suddenly seen and then blown away, leaving level, clear places. I realised that the angels and horses were sent to stir up everything that was neither in the right place, position or purpose, nor in the right heart attitude. So I knew that the stirring was a good thing, but it didn't seem like that to watch, and it certainly wouldn't have felt good to the people who were in the middle of the waves. I saw buildings crumbling in the dust and lots of paper flying around. Through the dust I could see pinpoints of the most amazing light, pinpoints of glory. Some lights stayed in their place during the dust waves, but others seemed to move ahead of the waves. I asked the Lord what it meant and he said that his plans and purposes for time on earth now have moved into a new time. The planned time. A keros moment, if you like. When God breaks in. Time had slipped. For this time, he had to have his people right. In the right place, with the right people, and in right relationship with him and the body. So he sent his angels to minister the stirring up of the people. But the dust was not from the angels, it was the earthly things being stirred up and blown away. He said that many in this time will be repositioned or have radical changes in circumstances or situations. Old mindsets and even godly desires will be swept away to prepare for this time on earth which is ordained from heaven. 
After the dust had been stirred up, there was to be a time of seeming silence and emptiness. But this too was the Lord, and the emptiness was to be filled with a desire for God and his will alone, and nothing of the earth. Brackets dust. Then a great silence, a stillness, a moment occurred. The moment was for a response. After the response, movements slowly began to be seen and people emerged. It looked like Red Cross uniforms moving across a battlefield after a great battle. People of comfort and hope emerged first. Words of encouragement were bringing restoration and courage to rebuild out of the emptiness and devastation. Many repairers and restorers then appeared. The devastation was most seen in those who had been captive to religious structures which did not bring life, and many of these came from surprising places. The purpose of the horses was to trample the earth so that the people could see what was of dust and what was of the Lord. So much dust was thrown up. The pinpoints of glory were the things of heaven which were established on earth. Some of the things were established and needed to stay behind. Others were to carry forward into the new time as they had yet to reach completion. However, I knew that some of those lights that stayed behind also had not reached completion, but that the time had passed and they needed to be left as they did not fit what was coming. Any of these lights in the future would be through a different means and those who were holding on to them needed to let go or stay behind. They would stay in their present places, still holding the glory of God, but missing the opportunity to move into the new thing God was going to do. I asked the Lord what people should do when the dust was rising and he said, what do you do in a dust storm? <coughs> you should cover your eyes, ears and mouths. This will keep them clear, so vision and testimony are not distorted. It will also stop premature words being released. Words will come later. After the dust has passed, I will move in hearts and speak my secret plans and mysteries so the people might not be deceived or confused during the dust storm and will have courage and strength to move forward with me. The prophets will speak when the dust has settled. For what is really happening during the dust storm is not to be spoken about. Much challenge, repentance and purification will take place in the dust. Much grace and mercy will be released. Hearts will be revealed. I knew it would be a shock and a loss to those who have been busy building structures and plans. Many structures which fulfilled God's purposes in the past will be redundant in this new time. The structure the Lord is ordaining for the new time is built first on relationship with function following. Just as God is relational first and out of relationship, life comes. Who we are together will determine what we do, not what we do signifying who we are. There is no lack of things to do, but there is a famine of true fellowship. Fellowships of the heart will emerge from the dust storm. It will seem like all that is left from our old way is a heart to serve God. There will be no obvious form or structure to hide under. The Spirit will lead and guide, gather and reposition the people, ready for what is coming. Only God can do this.
and the date of that word is the 21st of October 2007 and I believe it's validated by things that are happening and by the way that God is, uh, is speaking into my own heart there's such an urgency uh, that we begin to really come into what he wants for us um, this fell out of my Bible this morning um, just so you might know what my role and function is because it's coming clearer to me as, as days pass on the job of the prophet is to penetrate the thing that hinders God's people from loving him. So that is my role. So my words often penetrating. It goes right to the heart, it makes everybody jump about and say, can't you be more gentle? <laughs> the false prophet is the one who says really good things that aren't from God. So there's a way that you can... Uh, test the word, you need to test what's coming forth from me um, because we are in perilous times and we all make mistakes um, but the word that I woke with this morning as I woke with when we did the sex, sex and sexuality or sex and morality in the 21st century church a few weeks ago was the word seduction and we are being seduced into the world's ways without realising it because it's so much a part of everything that we've been brought up with and so well, we are in the world without realising how much we are in the world if you like God is absolutely shaking everything he first began to speak to me about this season uh, I think somewhere around 2001-2002 Christmas uh, the scripture he used was they teach for commandments the doctrines of men you may or may not know we are never commanded to celebrate the Lord's birth but the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes Christmas is a snare and a trap in many ways so off we go In order for the body of Christ to prepare itself to be the bride of Christ as it one day must be, we need to have not another revival, not another great awakening, but a complete reformation. A reformation in our approach to the scriptures, a reformation in our approach to each other, and a reformation especially in our approach to God and our love for God. When this takes place, and only then, can we truly obey the first and greatest commandment that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our minds and all of our strength. This is the essence and true meaning of our calling as Christians. This is why I showed you these two ladies. The old crone, which is, I would venture to say, the church as she is at the moment, and the young and beautiful girl, which is what she's going to be. It's going to be a reformation, a transformation, and we are going to be turned, I've got the old crone looking at me here, the way I'm looking at it, into the beautiful young maiden. 
What I will be sharing this day and probably until Jesus comes is how important it is that we get back to the first commandment, placing God in his rightful place of honour in our lives. For too long we've put the second commandment first. We've become a consumer church, a please the people at all cost church, a don't rock the boat church. Beloved, there is a fresh wind blowing. Today is just the start of what God is seeking to do and will do in his church before Jesus comes. A complete reformation of the way we think, perceive and live out our faith. So may God bless you as you listen to this. May he awaken in you a desire to commit yourself to him afresh this day, forsaking all others, cleaving only to him. It's only from putting this relation first in our lives that we'll enter the power and authority God wants to bestow upon his church before Jesus comes. Beloved, we have choices to make. Someone said to me on Wednesday, because I'm beginning to teach now about the difference between eros and agape, love or agape, however you pronounce it, um, are you saying I shouldn't love my husband then? Uh, and I had not realised that that was what it sounded like. What I'm saying is that we need to set our affections on things above and not on the earth beneath, so that the centre of our being is centred on Jesus, where the agape love of Christ begins to grow in us. If we are centred on anything else, it is Eros, and I will explain who he is in a minute. He's that fellow depicted in that picture over there. It is eros love, it is fallen love, it is self-referential love, it suits me love. So we have to displace that in our hearts. If we do, we then begin to move. That pushes, agape pushes out eros. When we are centred on God within our very beings and, and getting the seed to grow within us. It means that we love our nearest and dearest with a pure love that seeks to take nothing from them. Because at the moment our love is sinful. We want them because of how it affects him. I want to see Stephen because I miss him. Not because he misses me, but because I miss him. So who's getting the pleasure out of this? Me. So I have got to learn to replace my eros with agape. Graham Cook's got one little prayer in one of his books and he said, turn my eros into agape or agape. And uh, I thought, oh, I didn't know he had a sexual problem. But of course he hadn't. He'd been sitting under Bob Mumford's teaching and it's Bob Mumford that talks about the difference and the revolution and the reformation that will take place as we get the first commandment first. We're good at doing the second one. It's easy. We can go and do in the church. We have our bazaars, we have our outreaches, we do, we have our programs. And all the while we're left untouched. So, Christmas. The season is upon us again with various assorted groans from the ladies and the prospect of a few days off for the men. And the odd office party, fighting off the advances of the ladies who've been waiting their chance for the last 12 months to steal a kiss under the mistletoe, if it's anything like it used to be when I was there. 
The children look forward to sacks full of presents, most of which will be discarded by the end of the day and will be blessed if we don't end up with a family fight before the end of the celebrations. Having to endure spending time with people we don't like very much. Cynical? I don't think so. True? Yes. So what is this season all about? Does it really have a biblical support for all the fuss that we make? Let's explore a few scriptures and see what we come up with and yo-ho-ho to you all. I thought I would, if I had one I'd wear a little red hat with a bobble on it this morning just out of naughtiness. Before we start I'm going to make a statement which by the time we finish I think we'll understand and the statement is culture is more powerful than doctrine. We can know something as a truth and still live against it. The season we're coming into will have more of a hold on you than the truth of the situation because of the culture in which we live and the pressure within that culture to conform to what is celebrated at this time of the year. Not celebrating Christmas would be like swimming against the tide of humanity and would make you very unpopular. The whole earth celebrates the winter solstice, Christians included. Only we've overlaid it with our Lord to make it not only acceptable but also respectable. And we can rationalise all the things we do at this time of the year. We are captive to the culture. Somebody even said to me the other night, well it brings people in at least twice a year. I said, yeah, but it leaves them in the same place as they were when they came in. And I'm not looking for a baby in a crib to come back. I'm looking for a becoming king and the Lord of Lords and every knee is going to bow. I mean, let's have it like it is. So my purpose is always to lay out the facts and let you decide for yourselves. I'd like to give you a scripture for the statement, culture is more powerful than doctrine. And it is Exodus 32, 25. And the people rose up to play. Here we see Moses is missing, obtaining from God the Ten Commandments. The people get bored with waiting and persuade Aaron to make them a golden calf so that they can worship it. You may be asking right now, what's this got to do with the season? Simply this, it's our golden calf that we have made while we wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus. We've come so captive to our culture that we are totally unaware of it. I hasten to say this is not limited to the 21st century. The slide began, believe it or not, around about 60 AD, just after the Apostles died. Just been corrected, it's Exodus 32.6, not Exodus 32.25, so please, it's Exodus 32.6. And the people rose up to play. So Moses is missing, obtaining from God the Ten Commandments. Um, I think I got as far as the, the slide began about AD 60, 60. Um, so we're living in the culmination of it, living a life so far below that which Jesus not only won for us but wants us to have, that it's almost unrecognisable, but it's not too late to change. Graham Cook's fond of saying that God is not coming back or Jesus isn't coming back for an acne-ridden old hag. He's coming back for a radiant bride. So he's 
to do that, to change that this old crone into this beautiful woman means there's going to be a little bit of heat and a little bit of pressure. So uh, we need to uh, uh, ironing out the wrinkles and squeezing out the zits. We. <laughs> Oh, God is a God of joy and love, I think. He just, he just is so lovely. So the church right now needs a reformation, not a revival. God's people have always experienced revival. Look at the history of Israel. God was always raising up godly kings and revival took place. What we need right now is reformation. And reformation will start with me, it will start with you, it starts with something going on deep inside me that will outwork to reform not only me, but the society within which I live, to really show that I'm different, separate, set apart unto God, whom I profess to serve. This is not outward show, this is not Pharisaism, this is something that is going to happen from the inside out, that will cause people to say, what have you got? I want it. I've had one person say that to me and I was absolutely delighted. I want what you've got. Not many of us can say that God has not been stirring something deep within us during this past year. We've entered into a new era in God, not a new move, but an entirely new era. And this word that I've read this morning is just repeating that. It's a paradigm shift. A paradigm is a pattern. And there is a change in the pattern God is cutting of his church. If you watch closely, you'll see it. A paradigm shift is where we look at something familiar completely differently, just like the picture of the lady. So much so that the one is unrecognisable from the other. I think that's a brilliant picture. The old crones look in there at me at the minute, but I can look and see the lady as well. What we are going to see in the next very short space of time is a collapse of everything that we know as church and something new rising out of the dust. Next year, God willing, I will be looking at such subjects as anarchy and rebellion and the sources and reasons for this. But as I've already said, God has started to lay out what he wants to talk about and I think, I don't know, I just all I know is what he wants to talk about. That's all I've got is the title, so we'll see where that, that takes us. But once this anarchy and rebellion thing is out of the bottle, it's impossible to get it back again. No matter what your personal opinion, we're headed for the biggest clash of light and darkness the world has ever seen. I sense that we need not only to be informed of the light, but walking in the light. The cup of iniquity is almost full. To find out what this means, you'll have to come to the teaching on Revelation next year. But the principle is that God doesn't judge until sin reaches its right to the top of the cup and spills over and you see it first in really, really early in Genesis, but we won't go there right now. But the whole world is pretty well teetering on the edge of the iniquity being full. But for today, a little bit light-hearted, I want to look at three things. The Jewish celebration known as the Feast of Hanukkah, 
that is H-U-N-A-K-K-A-H, or the Festival of Lights. And who were the wise men? And finally, the reason for the season, what it is and is not. So first of all, I want to talk about the Festival of Lights, and as I said earlier on, I've got a menorah here, which is a seven-branch candlestick, the one that is in the holy place, in the tabernacle, in the temple, along with the showbread, the bread of the presence, the bread of the face. At home we've got a little corner where God has told us to have the bread on display and the candlestick above it. Because one of the interpretations is that the bread represents the heart of the believer with the light of Jesus shining constantly on the heart of the believer. So when you come in our front door, you can know that God's shining on your heart and exposing <laughs> everything that he just wants to put his finger on. It's not a bad thing. I don't run away from it. So there it is. The Hanukkah menorah um, actually has nine branches, but I just don't have one of those. There's also a lovely scripture in Isaiah that talks about Jesus being this, the Holy Spirit being the central branch, and he's full of wisdom and power. Um, H goes in twos. I won't go there again right now, but in Isaiah it talks about the, the branches coming off, and you can see it's modelling the seven-branch candlestick. So, Festival of Lights. This feast was first celebrated at the dedication of the temple in 165 BC when the Maccabee brothers led a revolt against Antiochus IV. Details of the story are found in Odea. The Apocrypha. One Maccabees 2 to 25, very useful book to be reading if you want history. That's the only reason you look at it, because it's not part of the canon of scripture, but it's useful, because it gives you historically, as does Josephus. So today, this feast is celebrated in many Jewish homes. It's an eight-day festival, where an eight-branch candelabrum, called a Hanayaka, or a Hanukkah menorah, is lit. So the central one is the servant lamp and the others come out from the side of it. So you get eight little what's it's all together and nine with the central one. Friends and family gather for festive meals which include potato pancakes and pastries. There are games for the children, storytelling, songs and prayers. It begins each year on the 25th day of the lunar month Kislev. Some of you may know that the Jews follow a different calendar from us. This usually corresponds to late November or early December on our calendar, and this year it starts on the 5th of December. It's a festival which commemorates an important victory for the Jews, which occurred some 160 years before Jesus was born. These events happened during the turbulent years of the disintegration of Alexander the Great's Grecian Empire and the rise of the iron-clawed Roman Empire. And we'll see more of this again when we study the book of Revelation and we look into the book of Daniel. Alexander's conquests had introduced the world to the Greek language, common or koine Greek, Greek thought, customs and philosophy. Greek education had become a universal standard and we are still Greek in our thinking, as I've said to you, you know, tell a Greek something like this and they'll go straight away to get all the references, I'm saying myself, get piles and piles of information. Uh, say, my peace I leave with you, where they'll go and do a word study on peace. If you say that to a Jew, you say, okay, give it to me then. Jews are more 
receiving of what God wants to do. We need both. When Alexander died, suddenly his great empire was split under four generals, one of which was Antiochus IV, who declared himself Antiochus Epiphanes, meaning God manifest. In other words, he called himself the God. He declared he was divine. Behind his back, however, the people called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the Madman. Around 170 BC, having failed to invade England, he reversed back and in fury overran Jerusalem. Whereas his forebears had been lenient towards the Jews, he hated them and vented his malicious anger on them. He entered the temple, killing the priests and their families and ransacking it. It is recorded he actually skinned some people alive, which is absolutely horrendous, isn't it? He destroyed the scrolls and condemned to death those serving and worshipping there. The carnage was terrible. The temple was quickly converted into a temple to Zeus, with idols erected and pigs sacrificed on the altar. Any Jew who would not bow down to this was summarily executed. The persecution of Jews was intense and many died for their faith in Jehovah. One priest, Mattathias and his sons, fled Jerusalem when the temple was overrun and sought sanctuary to a town called Modin near Lydda to the west of Jerusalem. I had quite a job to find out the proper spelling of this, but I found it in the inn. I went into a little thing called Wikipedia, which is a free encyclopedia on the um, internet and found it in there. They could not, however, escape the arm of Antiochus. The king's officers eventually came to Matatas and his five sons, demanding that they comply and fall down and worship and sacrifice to Zeus. He refused, and he and his sons took up arms against the king's officers and slew them. Lost me place. They knew this act of insurrection would bring wrath down on them. So old Mattathias called out to all the people, let everyone who is zealous for the Torah, the five books of Moses, and who stands by the covenant, follow me. So they fled to the mountains. They were not long alone. Joined by others, they soon formed a small army and mounted guerrilla warfare against the Syrian occupation force, determined to return to Jerusalem and regain the temple. During their engagement against the Syrian occupation force, the freedom fighters came to be called Maccabees, which means hammers. And Judah Maccabees would forever after be known as Judah the Hammerer. Their early successes attracted attention and the little army was harassed constantly by the opposing forces. Soon the Seleucids sent thousands of mercenary soldiers to root out the rebels in the hills, thinking to get a quick and easy victory. But in a stunning victory, much like the modern Six-Day War, the Lord overthrew the massive army before a small band of rebels, and it was clearly a miracle. They pushed her forward despite overwhelming odds and took back Jerusalem. Some time has passed, you can realise, in all this, and they found the temple overgrown with vines and weeds and filled with garbage, and on the altar was an idol. The Jews cleaned the temple, but when they were ready to light the lamp, the menorah, in the holy place, they could only find one small jar with a seal. 
and the, the, the oil had to be prepared in a certain way, freshly pressed oil, virgin olive oil, sealed for the use and holy unto the use of the temple, that I could only find one of these. And there was only enough oil to burn, in the jar to burn for one day. Uncertain of what to do, they decided to keep the ceremony of lighting the lamp as best they could. They lit it, fully expecting it to go out that day. Miraculously, the oil lasted for eight days until a new supply was prepared. Finally then, on the 25th day of the ninth month, that is the month of Kislev, in the year 165 BC, they offered the first sacrifice according to the law on the new altar in the restored temple. And there was great joy among the people now that the disgrace of the Gentiles was removed. So now in modern Israel, during the eight nights of Hanukkah, the Jewish people remember that miracle by lighting the Hanukkah menorah in their homes, either by oil lamps or by placing candles in them. They light one light each night until the eight lights are lit. They then recite blessings and recall the miracle of the oil. Like many celebrations, this has changed over the years from a celebration marking the military victory to a more spiritual one marking the miracle of the oil. This sort of thing happens. History changes things, as we'll see when we, when we look at the role and function of women, how history actually changes things. Very little was made of this festival until recent times. It's not considered by the Jews to be a religious festival. Work may be carried out, children attend school, but in recent years, to counteract the strong influence of the Christmas season and its festivals on the lives of Jewish children who otherwise might feel left out, Jewish parents have begun to celebrate in more elaborate ways. They give gifts on each night of Hanukkah, so it would be nice to bring in Hanukkah, wouldn't it, get a prezi every night? And it's become commonplace in the Jewish community to include putting up of chains and a Christmas tree. They could become captive to the culture. As a matter of interest, we know from John 10.22 that Jesus himself was in the temple area at the time of the Feast of Dedication. Interesting, eh? Or Hanukkah. Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple area walking in St. Simon's Colonnade. Solomon's Colonnade. So it's interesting, isn't it? that from something that happened actually historically was taken into the Jewish calendar and Jesus himself as a good rabbi, a good Jewish boy celebrates the Feast of Dedication. Interesting little study. So I'll give you a five minute break before we go on to the next one. Okay. So who were the wise men? Another interesting little study. Many Christians today don't understand why the wise men or the magi are in the Bible. Were there only three of them? What was their significance and why do they seemingly have such an important part to play? Most, if not all of us, are familiar with the account of the wise men, which we find in Matthew 2, 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Most of us have been taught that there were three of them and they were kings. This is an assumption based on the number of gifts they brought Jesus. 
were then told that these three kings found a star which brought them to Jesus. Some people have then added to this account by saying that these three were all descended from Noah's sons, Ham, and as such they're all black. And very often you will see these depicted as black, as kings, and seated on camels. Sometimes you will hear people say their names were Balthazar, Melchior, and Caspar. The Bible doesn't say anything about that at all. And as we'll see as we go on with this study, the whole legend around which the Christmas celebration is woven is shot through with folklore, legend and paganism. To see historically what we're seeing, we need to say we need to go into ancient history as well as the Bible. People who have had nothing to do with Christianity have written a lot about the wise men. Historians have in fact done much of the verification work concerning them. They found that not only in the Bible were there groups of wise men, but also in most other ancient civilizations had groups of them as well. So going back to Matthew 2, 1 to 3, verse 3 tells us, When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod the Great had no entitlement to the throne of Judah. He was a usurper to the throne, an illegitimate king. He was not born from the house of David and he wasn't even Jewish by birth. He was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, and he hated the Jews with a passion. A little background would be useful here. Following the Maccabean revolt, which we've just looked at, and the resumption of temple sacrifice, the Maccabees themselves presumptuously took the throne of Israel shortly afterwards, assuming the crown and the high priesthood. And their right to the crown was illegitimate. They were not descendants of David. The Hasmonean kings, as they were known, were less righteous in their rule. Often they themselves became persecutors of the people and their short dynasty finally collapsed into a civil war between two brothers for the throne in Jerusalem. So about 60 years before the birth of Jesus, a certain Edomite noble by the name of Antipater called on Rome to intervene and settle the conflict. Interesting, isn't it? Jerusalem has always been the source of conflict. The Roman general Pompey marched on the land of Israel, seized Jerusalem and the temple, and settled the civil war by force. As a result, Israel became subject to Rome, and Antipater was promoted to govern it. When Antipater died, the Roman Caesar Augustus put Antipater's son Herod in the position of king over Israel. As a military general, politician and great builder, Herod was truly great, but as a king he was a tyrant. The stories of Herod's paranoia and butchery are notorious. He knew his right to the throne of Israel was artificial, and this made him guard his throne from every real or imagined enemy. To protect it, he murdered his wife, who was a daughter of the Hasmonean dynasty, and had his son strangled. Friends and family were routinely poisoned, tortured and murdered in order to keep the throne safe. Augustus Caesar commented on Herod's bloody reign of terror by saying, Better to be a pig in Herod's house than one of his sons. Herod was cruel, cunning and cold-blooded. The murder of the innocents falls within his final madness, 
slaughtering all the boy children under two years old in an attempt to kill the boy Jesus. This satanically inspired plot can be traced through the Bible until Satan's final attempt in which he had Jesus crucified and thought he'd won, when in reality he was carrying out God's plan of redemption. You remember that we traced this early on in our studies, the way that there was just one boy left at one time that would carry the name and bring forth the king. Um, Interesting study how Satan tried to blot him out. So his son, Herod Antipas, some 33 years after this, was the one who had John the Baptist killed, and his grandson, Herod Agrippa I, 14 years later still, killed James the Apostle. You'll find that in Acts 12, 1 and 2, I hope, after having made a mistake with my last Bible reference. His great-grandson, Herod Agrippa II, some 16 years after that, was the king before whom Paul was tried. And you'll find that in Acts 25, 13 to 26, and then verse 32. But back to the Magi. Magi is a name. Magi only tells us the name, it doesn't give us the number. These Magi were not kings. The Gospel of Matthew is very accurate indeed because Matthew has named the group they were. The Magi, not just wise men, there were lots of those. The name locates where they came from. They belonged to the nation of Media or the kingdom of the Medes. Six major empires dominated ancient history. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Media and Persia, Greece and Rome. See that again when we do Daniel in the book of Revelation. The Medes lived north of the Caspian Sea, present day northern Iraq. The Magi were Medes. They were generally the priests in their country and they functioned as priests hundreds of years before Jesus was born. They were also astronomers, but they didn't stick to astronomy. They also became involved with the superstition of astrology. They thought that by doing this they could predict the future and other events. Kings and rulers of the ancient world relied on their astronomers and astrologers and before long they became known as fortune tellers or soothsayers. And the Bible has a lot to say about them. They became more and more powerful as they went further and further into occult practices. Our present day word magic comes from the ancient word word magi, which means sorcerer. So the magi were sorcerers. They practiced witchcraft and divination. In the East, no king or political group would be without its team of magi. They became the kingmakers of the ancient world. They decided who would be king in a certain country. So now you can see why Herod and all Jerusalem with him was troubled. Herod was very old and ill by now, and at the time when these magi arrived, there was no commander-in-chief of the Roman army. Herod was very near to death and he knew it. And besides all this, his entire army was out of the country on a mission. So into this scenario come the Magi, or the Kingmakers, and he got the wind up big time. Not only this, but these men didn't travel in ones and twos. They were important and well respected in their day. They didn't creep into Jerusalem. They rode into Jerusalem on horses, not camels, with a military escort of armed troops, at least a thousand, 
because of the important position they had. They didn't, as it's portrayed on the Christmas card, come silently in on camels bearing three gifts. So Herod and all Jerusalem knew that the kingmakers had arrived and they intended to make someone king and it wasn't Herod. So now you can see the reason why it says Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The political Jews would have been troubled too. They enjoyed their position in the synagogue and the honour afforded them. This is why they continually questioned Jesus about his mission. They didn't want to lose their power and position in society. All Jerusalem was troubled. It's soon apparent that these Magi were different. These Magi were believers looking for the promised Messiah. Their journey was purposeful. Somehow they knew that the one to come had been born and they knew where to look for him. Now we go back into the book of Daniel, Daniel 2, 1 to 5 and 10 to 13 and then 24 and 28 and 31. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to tell the king of his dream. So they came and stood before the king and the king said to them, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know and understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans, the magicians, the astrologers and the sorcerers spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. But the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, nice and friendly, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. So here we have Nebuchadnezzar's dream and his magi are summoned to interpret it. Note that the verse 2 uses the word magicians. Whenever you read in the Bible magicians, it's the word magi. And if you go away and check it up for yourself, through ancient history or a literal translation, you'll find that the word is magi, not magicians. Verse 13 now. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Daniel was also sought to be put to death because he and his friends were becoming known as a group of wise men. And it was at this point that God intervenes. You know the story, Daniel tells the king not only the interpretation but the dream itself and the king is delighted. Daniel 2.48 Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel becomes top dog of the Magi appointed directly by the king himself who has now become a believer in Yeshua. In Daniel 2.47 we see, Surely the Lord your God is the God of gods, the King of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Of course, Daniel was a born-again believer, so it's obvious he's going to have nothing to do with the occult. Now, the top man of the Magi is a Bible believer, and that means there are going to be changes as far as the Magi are concerned. Before we go on, let me tell you something about the religion of the Magi, because at this point in history, the history of the Magi changes. Before the time of Daniel, they all had one religion. They worshipped fire, they had an altar where the flame was always alight, 
They had animal sacrifice as well. And if you look at the religion of the Magi, you'll see that it's very much like the religion of Israel, but a total counterfeit. The Magi even had clean and unclean animals. And most of the Magi were priests of that religion until the time of Daniel. At the time of Daniel, two things happened. Daniel came in and he preached the word of God and as a result, some of the Magi became believers. They believed on the one who was to come. Before the time of Daniel, or at least about this time, a man arose by the name of Soroaster. His name means seed. Remember, we're in Babylon now. Satan's counterfeit to the true seed who was to come. He believed he was the saviour of the world and had come to save mankind, a false messiah. So now there are three groups of magi. Those who stayed with the old religion, those who followed Zoroaster, which incidentally is strong in places like India today, and those who became believers in the messiah or the one who was to come, Jesus Yeshua HaMashiach. After Daniel died, the Magi carried on, and a certain percentage of them remained believers, and it was some of this believing remnant that arrived in Jerusalem. I'm not going to say it was the first Christmas, because it wasn't. I've got a paper on Christmas written by Dwight Pryor here, just a piece of it, a Hebrew scholar who lives in Jerusalem, and it makes very interesting reading. Uh, I got it, it's a word that he gave in 2006 about the whole business of Christmas and the celebration of it. Suffice it to say, the fact that shepherds to whom the angels came were seated on the ground shows that Jesus was not born in December, it's too cold at that time of the year, and the flocks are brought in. It's much more likely that his birth was around September or October rather than December or even in the spring of the year. And Dwight goes into this. So here come these kingmakers, believing magi, riding into Jerusalem with their entourage. What about the star they've been following? Then Herod called the magi secretly and found out from them exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report it to me that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they'd seen in the east went ahead of them, and it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. It's clear at one point first, they'd not been following the star all of their journey. The star hadn't been there. If you read verse 10 again, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Why would they be overjoyed at seeing the star if they'd followed it all the way? The fact is they hadn't seen it since it appeared in Persia. What happened was when this star appeared they knew it was time to leave for the land of Israel. They didn't need a star to guide them there. They knew what was going to happen and they went to find out what they already knew about, the birth of the promised Messiah. So how did they know where to go? Again, the answer is in the book of Daniel, Daniel 9, 20-26, and the angel Gabriel is speaking. Very significant passage, this, which we will unpick again when we come to do Revelation. No one understand this. From the issue of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. A time span. 
Again, we'll go into this passage known as Daniel's 70 weeks in some depth when we look at the book of Revelation next year. But right now, we need to see who gave the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Because by that, we can mark where it was, what the time was. And it was a Persian king. So that marked the beginning of the time period for the birth of Christ. So the Magi worked it out, and off they went to Israel. So we can see, can we see what we think is accurate? Daniel 9.25 is the starting point of the command to rebuild Jerusalem and nothing else. What we have here is a prophecy concerning the Messiah. I'll say it again. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens, and 62 sevens. So they've got to do the math, haven't they? They did their sums. So we'll do ours. Nebuchadnezzar marched into Jerusalem and when he marched out in 586 BC he left a pile of rubble where the city used to be. So Daniel gives us a prophecy here that someone is going to rebuild and issue an order to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and from that date the birth of the Messiah can be established, taking into account these 70 weeks. So we're looking for the decree which dates the command to rebuild Jerusalem. And there are four possibilities. The first is King Cyrus the Persian. The second is Darius, not the one at the beginning of Daniel 9, although he was a Persian. The third is Artaxerxes Longimanus, Artaxerxes the long-handed one. He made two decrees. Number three would be his first decree and Artaxerxes' second decree. The first one, the Cyrus decree, is found in Ezra. Ezra 1, 1 to 3. That's the Cyrus decree and it's the, to rebuild the temple, not the city. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. Let him go up and build the temple of the Lord. So it's not number one. The second one, Ezra 6, 1 to 3, King Darius then issued an order, let the temple, temple be rebuilt. Again, this decree concerns the temple, so it's not this one. Number three is the first decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus, and it's found in Ezra 7, 11 to 17 and 27. How many of us just read over this stuff when we're reading Ezra and Nehemiah? And then suddenly when you start digging in, you find that it's all in there for you to find. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra, the priest and teacher, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord. Now I decree, and he goes on to say, it's about the temple, to honour the house of the Lord. So it has to be Artaxerxes' second decree, which we find in Nehemiah 2, 1-6. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, nice date there, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. 
Why should my face look, not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, a quick one, and answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. This is the decree about the city, and this decree was issued between 79 and 80 years after Gabriel the angel spoke to Daniel. So now we have the period of time up to Jesus' birth in this decree. And the starting point is the 20th year of Artaxerxes Longimanus. And now we know why the Magi turned up to worship Jesus. When they arrived in Jerusalem, the child, Jesus, is now living in a house, not as portrayed in folklore, with them arriving at the inn and the manger and all that stuff. The child is by now just under two years old. Matthew 2.11, on coming to the house, not the inn, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. So the Magi arrived some time after the birth of Jesus to a house, no mention of a stable, and they worshipped him. These Eastern Gentile kingmakers knew that the king had been born. And the presence of the Magi would have told everyone around that Jesus was king. They didn't just come to anybody. These Persian men with their guard of upwards of a thousand troops turning up in a small town, coming to a simple building to worship a baby would have been the talking point of the whole place. The Saviour was born and even the Magi knew it. That's the point that Matthew is making in writing to the Jewish people in his Gospel. Gold, frankincense and myrrh, these were the three gifts the Magi brought. That's why people always think there were just three of them but, as I said, we're not told how many there were. These gifts are very important because they showed that the Magi knew who they were visiting. Gold is always given to a king. You never gave a king anything but gold. So the gold meant that the baby was a king. Incense. The only time you gave incense to someone was when you were worshipping a god. You never gave incense other than in worship. All the altars in the ancient world had incense going on them up all the time. So the Magi knew Jesus was God incarnate. And myrrh. You always gave myrrh to your best friend. It made you smell nice. The Chanel of the ancient world. It was also an anaesthetic and it was used to embalm people. So it was in many ways used in connection with human life. So gold meant Jesus was a king. Incense meant Jesus was God. Myrrh meant Jesus was man. He was fully man and fully God. We'll maybe have a look at Jesus the man one of these times. We're often so busy emphasising the crib and the baby Jesus that there's one bit of the Christmas message so-called that's always forgotten and that is the slaughter of the innocents when Herod decreed the death of every male child under two years old. There would have been great weeping and sorrow, yet this is never portrayed at this season. Let's 
just end this part of the study by saying that as far as Herod was concerned, he got the matter right about killing the children aged two and below because he knew a very simple fact. Either Jesus was king or Herod was, but you couldn't have both. This brings us to a very simple conclusion too. Either Jesus is king in our lives or we are. We can't have both. Many Christians try to have it both ways. This is the central message of Christmas. If Jesus is going to be king of my life, I have got to be deposed. What we were speaking about earlier on, about the Eros and the Agape. So the worldwide celebration of Christmas, my, my, did I find a can of worms when I started to unpick this bit. But I've made it as simple as I possibly can because it's really quite interesting. To see the start of this, we need to go back to Babylon again in Chaldea on the Euphrates near modern-day Iraq, the place where some of Noah's progeny settled immediately after the flood and the place to which Daniel was deported. You remember when we studied homosexuality, we looked at Canaan, uh, Noah's grandson from the line of Ham, the one that Noah cursed, and subsequently, whoops, where... Um, the homosexuality began. And the subject of this little study is also a grandson of Noah, this time Nimrod, the son of Cush, the son of Ham. Same line, another of Ham's boys, who settled on the Euphrates River. Babylon was a rich city, built like Nineveh by Nimrod, grandson of Noah, who it is said in Genesis 10:9 was a mighty hunter before the Lord, this is a mistranslation. Nimrod was a mighty rebel and a powerful rebel before the Lord, establishing Babel and building a tower in direct rebellion to God's stated command to scatter and fill up the earth. In Genesis 11, 1-4, you'll find it says, Now the whole earth had one language and a common speech, which means they all thought the same way. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, eastward being from Mount Ararat, where they came out of the ark and started to spread. So if you've got the ark up here on Mount Ararat, they came directly down uh, to the land of Shinar, the Chaldeans, Babylon down here on the Euphrates River. But on the other hand, Canaan and his mob went over there, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and Canaan's land that God gave to Israel over that side. So they found a plain in Shinar, Babylon, modern day, Iraq and settled there and said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bit brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. They waterproofed it. They weren't taking the chance of another flood, although God had said he wouldn't flood the earth again. They didn't believe him, so they waterproofed their tower. This tower was ranked disobedience and is one of the most evil things that mankind has ever designed. This was the start of a movement which is becoming very obvious now. Mankind's attempt to be totally independent from God, politically, religiously and commercially. It's a system that the Bible calls Mystery Babylon. Gotta come to the teaching on Revelation and find out about that one. So Nimrod decides he's going to be king of the earth, not God, and he begins his kingdom by building a city in Babylon. 
He built, built many cities, of which Nineveh was one. Do you remember where uh, Jonah was sent, wasn't he? Satan spawns a blasphemous religious system in Babylon. When man fell, he had a spiritual void inside of him which nothing but God could fill. And Satan knew that if he left that void unfilled, sooner or later, man would realize that things had not worked out as he wanted them, so he'd go and look for something else. Do you imagine that he just said, oh dear, when God said in Genesis, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know me, I, I rarely say I believe. I usually stand on the revealed word of God. But on this occasion, I have to say, I want to posit a theory, which is to put forward for your consideration something such as a suggestion, an assumption, or a fact, which is that at that point, Satan conceived a plan to counterfeit the promised seed of the woman who was to bruise his head. He would provide a seed, but it would be a demonic counterpart to the true seed. And we see it in Zoroaster, who we referred to in the last study, whose name means seed. Having hatched his plan, he then waited his opportunity to bring the plan about. And his first opportunity came very soon with the birth of Cain. Remember Eve said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She thought, this is the one. This is the one that is going to put it all right. But now another one comes along, Abel. Abel had God's approval because he did things God's way. And we find God saying to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and desires to have you, but you must master it. But it masters him and he kills Abel. Did Satan fear that the one who was to be his downfall had arrived already and he had to get rid of him? So to deceive mankind, Satan devises a counterfeit religious system to, full, to fill the void. He was, remember, the most subtle of all Satan's creatures. He's very clever and still is. Somehow he must invent a plan which will include a woman who can bear the promised seed. This seed must die and rise again and be worshipped and lead away the whole earth. In this way, he, Satan, will have the worship he craves and destroy mankind who he hates with a malevolent hatred before he himself is cast into the lake of fire for eternity because he already knew his sentence was passed. It just hasn't been carried out yet. In apostate Nimrod and his consort Semiramis, or Semiramis, some people call it, Satan finds the perfect pair. However, the system didn't actually develop through Nimrod, but through Nimrod's wives, Semiramis. Let the story begin. Tradition has it that Shem, one of Noah's three sons, and Nimrod's uncle, was so disgusted at Nimrod's apostasy that he killed him while they were out hunting. Remember, Shem would have just come through the universal flood, he well knew the reason for it, as would Nimrod, hence his building of a waterproof tower. But when he discovers the rebellion in Nimrod, he takes the law into his own hands and kills him. Meanwhile, Semiramis, Nimrod's consort, hearing of the death of Nimrod, fearing for the loss of her position and wealth, deifies Nimrod, saying he was now a god and as such was to be worshipped. She also made herself a queen and required worship from her subjects. From this, all the gods, small g, have sprung, 
as has the almost universal worship of mother and son. The Greek gods Venus, Apollos, Pluto all spring from this. The goddess Astarte, which you read a lot of in the Old Testament, or Ishtar in Babylon, from which we derive our word Easter, Baal and his consort all root from here. The names are endless, but they go back to the same person, Satan, who was the originator of the counterfeit Messiah. So Miramis, it said, found one day that she was pregnant. She claimed her pregnancy was not from a human father, but from heaven. 